This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. Good morning. Well, my name's Owen, and uh, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here at Seven. If you're watching from home, you're so welcome. If you are listening to this retrospectively on your podcast, when you're in your car, or uh, when you're cycling around, just take care, make sure that you're concentrating on what you're doing. Um, uh, we, we, we podcast all of our talks, and if you've got access to wherever you get your podcast, if you want to listen to them, you can do that. I, I love listening to podcasts when I'm out running. It takes the boredom away of running. Um, and uh, our podcasts, I often listen to our podcasts here as well because I think they're great, and this, we've got so many great speakers sharing here. And uh, the current series that we're involved with at the moment is called Seeing Christ. It's, that's one that I'm driving. Uh, Claire's doing another one about uh, who is God. And um, you know what? Um, if you... If, you, if, you're, if you're like me and you enjoy being outdoors, being in the outdoor world and enjoying nature, then uh, do listen to the last talk, episode six of this current series about seeing Christ Jesus in nature. Just go and have a listen to that and see what difference that makes to your life. There's a wonderful visual uh, contemplative exercise that Byrne put together, beautiful meditation on Psalm 104 with visual images matching everything that's written about in Psalm 104. Um, you, can, uh, you can watch uh, all of our episodes on YouTube, Facebook, our website, and as I said, you can listen to our talks on, uh, on, on wherever you get your podcasts from. Now, in episode seven of Seeing Christ Today, I want to talk to you about seeing Christ Jesus in love. In love. Love is something I hope that we all get to experience. Love is something that I hope you have got to experience right now and right throughout your life. And the reality is, is that... Um, when we talk about God's love, uh, we all have a different experience of love, of course. And what I want to share with you today is a time in my life that I've experienced Christ Jesus through love. We've interviewed uh, Sam Sayer, Dan Maurice, uh, asking them, where have you experienced Christ Jesus? How have you encountered Christ Jesus in your life? And today I just want to share with you, if I may, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, just how I have, well, one way in which I have experienced Christ Jesus in my life. And uh, the story really revolves around love. It really does. Seeing Christ Jesus through the love that other people have shown to me. Um, I have to say that, um, and I can honestly say, that I've never had a time in my life when I was not aware and appreciating that I was loved by God. Genuinely. Now part of the reason might be that I grew up uh, with my parents attending the local village Methodist chapel um, and I was uh, taken along to Sunday school um, and generally expected to behave in a, in a very well, you know, in a very good way. I expected to be a good Christian boy. I, I generally wasn't. Um, I, I remember once sitting in church and there was a boy behind me kicking me incessantly, so I literally turned around and punched him in the face um, and uh, got dragged off to the vestry to get told off. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, genuinely, I genuinely believed that I was loved by God. I genuinely believe that I was loved by God. And, and, and I think I simply expected God to love me. And that might have been because I grew up in a Christian environment, but I think it also was because I grew up in a home where I was loved unconditionally. I was loved unconditionally by, by my parents. My, we would tell stories, and stories would be told by my parents, like we tell our kids now, and our kids just tell us to shut up, you know, because they just kind of like can't cope with the sentimental nature of it. But my dad would uh, often tell me how the day that I was born, he skipped home from the cottage hospital, the maternity hospital where I was born, delighted that, uh, that you know, that, uh, that Owen had been born. I mean, what child is not going to feel loved when he's told by that? Um, my dear mother, um, although uh, she 
often reminded me that I was the only one of her children that gave her postnatal depression. Um, the truth is, is that we had a very close relationship and I remember very, very vividly, aged eight years old, walking to primary school with her and informing her that I was never going to get married. I was always going to stay with my mum. Uh, we were very close, and uh, obviously that changed when I met Claire. Um, but the reality is, is that we were very close. I was, um, we had wonderful grandparents. Um, I had a particularly strong connection to my maternal grandmother. Um, we, we, were, we spent a lot of time together. Um, I would go and visit her by myself and my, my grandfather. And um, I, I remember only one time when my grandmother told me off. One time, I can remember it well. There was just once. But the rest of the time was just unconditional love, completely doting on me. Um, now, of course, um, a child that grows up with that much love, when they become a teenager, have the, um, the, the, the potential to become slightly obnoxious because they're so secure in themselves, they're so confident in themselves because they've been so well loved that actually they become a little bit arrogant and a little bit full of themselves. And of course, that was true for me. I definitely was. And, um, that uh, self-assurance mutated into cockiness and arrogance and at times got me into trouble with my peers and with people in authority um, and my poor two sisters, I've not mentioned them, who had to put up with me as their only brother, you know, just... Uh, so, so there are downsides to it, but the fact of the matter is, is that as a child, I was well loved and I felt that unconditional love and I naturally, logically believed, therefore, that Christ Jesus loved me unconditionally, just like the family around me loved me. The, uh, the author and the Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, argues that we tend to discover Christ Jesus through experiences of great love and great suffering. We tend to experience Christ Jesus through experiences of great love or, and or great suffering. And having been a church pastor now for, what, about 25 years? Is that right? It's a crazy amount of time, isn't it? Um, I can tell you that I've witnessed the suffering of, of people throughout that time. I've had it, you know, as a pastor, you tend to get an insight into people's lives that you wouldn't normally have. And I, I honestly can say that I know that compared to many people, I haven't experienced great suffering. But I have experienced great love. And through that great love, I've experienced the unconditional love of God for me. I believe it with my whole heart. And I can honestly tell you from the time... I started, well, from the moment my memory begins, I, I, mean, I don't know about you, but probably four, three or four years old, I can never remember a time when I haven't felt loved unconditionally by God. Now, something that always happened to me when I went to university, um, I'd, um, I went to Plymouth University to study geography. Um, and for those of you that know I'm a physio, I then went and did another degree in physio, uh, just so you're reassured. Um, uh, and um, when I went to university, I encountered students from the Christian Union. I, I remember it very clearly. Uh, in fact, recently I went to an open day at Plymouth Uni with one of my sons, and I remember walking across the same uh, sort of top of the Students' Union building and meeting some Christians who asked me if I'd been saved. To which I replied, from what? What do you mean? Well, they said, um, have you been saved from your sin? And I said, well, I, I guess so. Uh, what do you mean? Well, they said, you need to pray a prayer of repentance for all your sins so that Christ Jesus can forgive you and then you can experience the unconditional love of God. Well, I was like thinking to myself, well, I've experienced the unconditional love of God all my life. Why do I need 
to confess and repent of my sins. I was really confused. But look, I was an 18-year-old fresher, and I wanted to fit in. Everyone who's been to uni knows that feeling, right? You just want to fit in. So I was like, uh, okay, so what kind of things do I need to confess and repent of? They said things like, well, they said, getting drunk, smoking, and chasing girls. All those sorts of things. Well, I was thinking to myself, this is fresh as week. I did all that last week. You know, it was kind of like, do I really need to repent of that stuff? What does that even mean? So they assured me that I wasn't a Christian and said I confessed that stuff and asked Jesus to forgive me. But what was worse, and honestly it felt like worse, they advised me to not do any of those things again. They called it repentance. So I was like perplexed. So I, I, I can't get drunk, I can't smoke, I can't chase girls anymore because that will upset Jesus and that will that'll be a condition on his love for me. Is that what you're really saying? Because I'm like, this isn't the Jesus I've heard of. The Jesus I'd grown up with was a Jesus of unconditional love, loving me unconditionally, without condition. They also said I needed to do penance for my sins, so that I needed to go to church twice a week. I needed to go to the weekly Christian union meetings. I had to read my Bible every day. And I had to be accountable to another Christian for my behaviour. It was so bizarre. But I was like wanting to fit in. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll do that stuff. Okay, I'll do it. So um, I got so into it <clears throat> that when I went home that Christmas, you know, the first Christmas holiday after the first term at university, when you've just had a, 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 such a different life experience that, you know, you know, how many of you as students know that when you were a student, you were like, the rest of the world is wrong and we are right? You know that feeling, right? You're like, you know, everyone, I, I genuinely remember thinking to myself, Everyone should be a student. It's the best way of living. Of course it is. You're living off someone else's kindness. Um, the, the, reali the reality is, is that I went home and I said to everyone, in fact, at first thing, I said to my poor family, I said, by the way, guys, I found out, you're not Christians. You're not Christians. And that wasn't just because you smoke and you drink and, and you, know, you do all those things. It, you're not proper Christians because you've not said the prayer. And, and then I kind of annoyed all my friends as well, who, who previously uh, I'd you know, spent my teenage years with. They thought I'd gone off loopy. They really didn't know what I'd got into. They thought I'd got into a cult or something. Now, what are you doing with your life? But I was having none of it. I was like, you guys, you need to confess and repent of your sins in order for Jesus to love you. And, and, and I was so evangelical for it that um, I became the leader of the Christian Union. <laughs> And then I spent three years trying to persuade other Christians, other people rather, that they were filthy, rotten sinners in the hands of an angry God and they needed to repent of their sin before God would love them. I spent all those three years doing that. And the reality is, is that, um, you know, my, my and my friends' intentions were, were good. We, we, we wanted people to encounter God. But in our exuberance and in our naivety, we tended to turn more people off to Jesus than on to Jesus. And I think in truth, we put the cart before the horse, so to speak. We weren't altogether wrong in what we were doing, but we got it all in the wrong order. Now, John Wimber, who founded our Vineyard Movement, he's dead now, gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Californian, fat Californian, who uh, smoked and drank his way to Jesus and, um, and in the meantime wrote loads of amazing worship pieces of music and also before that produced the Righteous Brothers and things like that. If you're not familiar with the history of the vineyard, then John played a central part in its formation. And he said this, he said he understood the process of evangelism with a fishing metaphor. He said, you've got to hook them before you can clean them. 
by which he means, I think, if you want to have fish on the barbecue, first you've got to catch it before you then gut it and then, and then cook it, which shows that metaphors only really go so far. Um, <laughs> but what the point he was trying to make was, and he was really speaking to a church, particularly here in England, and I think it was the, con the context was here in England, because John influenced particularly the Anglican church here in England. He was saying, look, you guys, uh, you know, people, you don't want to, you, you want to, you don't want to put a barrier in front of people by which you say to people, you need to be good to come to church. Like, I mean, how many people know that's true, right? That, you know, I, how many people have said to you, like, I'm not good enough to come to church? In other words, you've got to be morally upright to come to church. You've got to have a sense of moral clarity and a moral, um, moral goodness in order to be part of God's church. That, that's the kind of general sort of pervasive view. And, and, and John was like, no, that's not how it is. That is not how it is. That's not to say that your life doesn't get transformed when you encounter Jesus, but you don't have to become something. You don't have to fulfill some conditions in order to be accepted by God. Most religions, <clears throat> of course, have a code of behaviour that their leaders use to help their members know that they're part of it. All right? most, most religions have that. But then so do most schools and sports clubs. You know, there's a code of conduct, isn't there? And that code of conduct is, this is who we are, and if you want to be one of us, then this is the code of conduct that we expect from you. That's normal in any, any sort of societal grouping. You know, it's, it's no surprise to me, therefore, that when I encountered these zealous uh, student Christians at Plymouth, they presented me with a code of conduct that I needed to follow in order to be welcomed into the group. And, and I want to be honest with you and say, a code of conduct, of course, in many contexts, is a great thing. You know, we have a staff code of conduct for seven. And that code of conduct says this is what we expect in terms of people's behaviour if they're employees of seven. I'm sure you're part of schools or your workplaces or wherever you, you work. You probably know that there's a code of conduct there. It is, this is who we are and this is how we expect people who are associated with this organisation to behave. Every society has that. Um, and every, every group tends to have that. However, when we're talking about the unconditional love of Christ Jesus, I want to say that there is no hoop that you need to jump through. There is no hoop that your friends and family need to jump through. There are no conditions that you have to meet. And I'm going to show you that if, if you'll indulge me uh, from the Bible. Now, every society in every era has individuals and groups that are forced to exist on the periphery of society. Okay? And... Uh, and the, the Jews and, and, and first century Jerusalem was no exception. But what's so incredible about Jesus Christ is that Jesus embraced all of those groups. Jesus was a rabbi, he was a Jew, but he embraced all of those groups. So let me just go through this with you. Let's first of all talk about the groups that Jesus embraced. And the first one top of the list is women. In first century Palestine, women were systematically subjugated and oppressed by men. And frankly, things haven't changed much, have they? We still live in a world where that is the case to our shame. And I say that as a bloke because I know that it's partly my, my responsibility to do something about that. But Jesus, Jesus was different. What, what we, know, we know very much that, that uh, Jesus always engaged with women. So John 4, 27, it, wasn't, it was normal for Jesus to speak to women and that wasn't common in society. 
Not only do the Gospels show Jesus speaking to women, but it depicts him doing so with an element of tenderness. He doesn't simply heal a woman with a bleeding disorder, he calls her daughter. Uh, When he addresses the woman doubled over with spiritual oppression, he calls her a daughter of Abraham, which confers on her the same status as a man. That was unknown in their society. Not only did Jesus allow his ministry to be largely supported by the financial offerings of women, look at Luke Luke 8 for that, but it was to women that he made his first post-resurrection appearance. Second group of people, the poor, people who live in poverty. Now, the interesting thing about Jesus is we think Jesus was poor himself. We think he came from a poor background. Uh, as was common, in, 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 and, and as is common throughout human history, the poorest in Palestinian society had the least power to change their circumstances. And rather than supporting them with welfare systems, the rich often blamed the poor for their problems and excluded them from society and temple worship. And let me say again, not much has changed. In contrast, Jesus' teaching humanised the poor and demonstrated God's incredible concern for their well-being. Luke 4.18 records Jesus as saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the... Anyone? The poor. That is Jesus' manifesto there, and the people that are right at the heart of Jesus' manifesto are the poor. Luke 6.20 Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Just listen to that, folks. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I could probably expand on that verse and tell you different ways in which we're poor. But let's not escape the reality that the majority of people in Jesus' society were poor. He came for the majority, not the minority. And Luke 14, verses 13 to 14. Jesus is telling one of his uh, allegorical stories. He says this, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The reality was that Jesus put the poor front and centre of his ministry. Third group of people, the unclean. It's difficult for us to imagine this now because of the, the way in which the church has been peripheralized in society. But the reality is, is that the temple and Jewish worship were the center of society and the priests were the most powerful people in society. Okay? And if you were excluded from temple worship, then you were not just excluded from going to church on a Sunday. You were excluded from all of the, all the welfare systems that, that existed as a result of the temple. So what happened with people who were ceremonially unclean? People with incurable diseases like leprosy. They, they weren't just isolated from temple worship. They were isolated from society. No one went near them for fear of contagion. What happened with Jesus? Well, those of you who know your Bibles well will already be able to anticipate this. In Mark 1, 40 to 45, Jesus physically embraces a man who is suffering with leprosy. Standard practice would tell us that that meant Jesus would become a leper. But he didn't. He healed him. He restored him fully to his family and his community. Not just restoring his physical health, but restoring his societal position so that he could fully engage in Jewish society. He does the same with the woman who's had a 12-year bleeding disorder. She's also excluded from the temple worship because of her illness. He doesn't avoid these people. He embraces them. And he cares nothing for his own ceremonially cleanliness. 
Fourth group of people, the oppressors. The Jews, as you probably know, felt no love for the Romans who had conquered and occupied their land. No love at all. And especially they felt no love for those Jews who conspired with the Romans to collect the taxes on behalf of the Romans. Why do we read so much in the Gospels of Jesus about the tax collectors? Well, because they were enemy number one. They were enemy number one. Everyone hated them. What did Jesus do? He embraced them. Whether it was Zacchaeus come down from that tree, I'm going to come to your house for tea. Uh, or whether it was, it was the Roman centurion who Jesus, uh, whose son Jesus healed. The reality is, is that Jesus embraced those whom society hated. And fifthly, ethnic groups. There's no doubt that uh, monotheism and Judaism at that time was fairly exclusive. And what you should understand, a quick history, quick little history lesson if you don't mind, the 12 tribes of Israel largely split into, at some point in their history, 10 and 2. So Judah and Benjamin in the south, and then the other 10 tribes in the north. This was in, in what we call Palestine now. And Judah and uh, Benjamin were largely centered around what we call Jerusalem. The other 10 tribes were all over the north, what we would now call southern Lebanon and Syria, all over the place. But the 10 tribes separated from the two tribes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom came to be known as centred on the capital of Samaria and the people were known as Samaritans, but they were effectively the ten tribes who had intermarried with other people from non-Jewish backgrounds. And the Jews and, and the Benjamites down in the south, they regarded the northern people as ethnically unclean, ceremonially unclean. And they, effectively their attitude to them was what we would call racism. Okay. So there's these people groups called the Samaritans. And what does Jesus do with them? Does he avoid them like all the other Jews? And by the way, Jews are called Jews because of the tribe of Judah. No. Luke 10 records uh, Jesus telling a story where the hero who loved and cared for the victim of a violent assault was a Samaritan. John 4 records Jesus crossing racial boundaries and embracing a Samaritan woman at the well who needs his help. So there's five groups of people there whom Jesus simply embraced and without condition. Jesus clearly loved people who were considered by the religious elite to be out of favour with God. His message was, God is present with humanity now. Read um, his, uh, his gospel statement. He says, the good news is I am here. God is now with you in a way that he's never been with you since the days of Genesis. And Jesus did not require these people who were considered out with God they didn't, he didn't require anything from them to earn his love and favour. He did not require them to jump through religious, ritual or moral hoops. He did not require them to say the prayer. He did not require them to confess their sins. He did not require them to change their lifestyle in order to make him love them. He simply loved them unconditionally. Friends, I want to suggest to you today that we can experience the love of Christ Jesus through the love of other people. And I, I want to give you the scriptural basis for this. And this is in 1 John, but it's not just in 1 John, it's right throughout the Bible, frankly. 1 John, verses 4 to 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. 1 John 4, 12, five verses later, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Can I read that again? Because you might have missed this. No one has ever seen God, John says. 
But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And 1 John 4, 16, four verses later, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Friends, isn't that a beautiful thing? That if you live in God, sorry, if you live in love, God lives in you because God is love. Artists the world over have explained in song, in painting, in sculpture, that love is really all there is. We all know that's true. Yes, there's layers of life that go on top of that, but at the pulsating heart of humanity is love. And that is because God is love. And John says, if we live in love, God lives in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And yes, of course the unconditional love changes our life. Anyone who's been loved unconditionally responds accordingly. When, when we talk about being repentant, when we talk about changing our lives, we do it in response to the unconditional love, not in order to earn the unconditional love, because that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as earning unconditional love. And so I want to suggest to you today, it's possible to say that we can see Christ Jesus in the unconditional love that other people show to us, but also we can show God and reveal Christ to other people by loving them unconditionally. Which is a rather beautiful thing, don't you think? And so when we talk about seeing Christ, when we experience this beautiful thing that we call love and that we just adore, don't we love being loved? What is, isn't it great to be loved unconditionally? And whoever it is, maybe it's a really good friend of yours, maybe it's a, a work colleague that shows incredible kindness to you, maybe it's a neighbour who's just so loving, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your siblings, maybe it's your children, maybe it's your grandchildren. When we sense that love, it's overwhelming, and it's overwhelming because God is love. God is love. And we can experience Christ Jesus through that unconditional love. And so when it comes to our mental, emotional, spiritual, and yes, even physical health, counsellors and scientists will tell you that there's no greater power to change us than unconditional love. Yes, there are techniques we can employ. Yes, there are courses we can do. Yes, there are lifestyles we can embrace. But it's at its heart, it is the unconditional love of God that changes us, that causes us to repent, that causes us to change the way we think, that causes us to behave differently. But friends, if you only ever try and change your life outside of the context of unconditional love, all you're getting into there is religion, performance. You don't need to perform to earn God's love. You don't. And that's what Jesus was about. That's what Jesus shows us. 
wonder if we're longing to see Christ Jesus in our everyday life. I wonder if there's a challenge for us in this. That if we were to show unconditional love to other people, perhaps we might see Christ Jesus more readily in our lives. Which is a real challenge when we're steaming mad about something that someone else has done to us, right? When we're angry, when we're frustrated, when we're just downright annoyed. If we want to experience Christ Jesus in our day-to-day lives, then perhaps just showing some unconditional love to someone else is a way that we might start to see Christ Jesus more in our day-to-day lives. Now, I want to invite you just as a contemplation of this, because I can see already many of you are just contemplating this thought. I just want to invite you to close your eyes and just reflect, just for a couple of minutes on this. Just reflect on the unconditional love shown to you by other people. Just for a moment, think about someone who has shown unconditional love to you. And through that love, and through that person, just imagine Christ Jesus expressing the unconditional love of God to you through that person. Because God is love. And if we live in love, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Now just for a moment, think about a time and a person to whom you've shown unconditional love. Think of that person whom you love. Why does love flow out from you to that person? Is it something in them or is it simply because you have this never-ending flow of love for them? It just comes from inside of you. You would never not show them unconditional love. You would never not love them. Friends, we are made in the image of God and God is love and whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Think of God's unconditional love for you and start to thank him for it, the ways in which God cares for you and provides for you and protects you and encourages you, the way that God makes you smile, the the way that God makes you feel. Think of just the sun shining down on your head. of the air that you breathe, the home that you live in, the friends that you have, the family that you have. 
the job that you have. And just remember and imagine how God's love is lavishly poured out upon you, like a fountain spilling forth its waters into an unending stream. The abundance of God's love. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and our love is made complete in us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And friends, when we recognize how significant God's unconditional love is to our, generally, to our general lives, that prayer that is often uttered by many, just give me your love, God, and that is enough for me, starts to make more sense. Love expressed through other people. Love expressed through you and me. May we rediscover Christ Jesus in our, the intimacy, the ordinary of our lives through the love of other people and through the love that we express to other people. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Thank you, Christ Jesus, that you reveal God's love to us. You are God's love to us and you live in us. Thank you for your presence with us today. May we go out of here today knowing your unconditional love for us and may that that joy that flows up from within us, that hope, that security, that assurance, that peace that flows up from knowing you love us unconditionally, may it be a profound foundation for everything that we do this week. May it be the front and centre of our thinking. May our hearts beat with that rhythm of joy that comes from knowing we are loved unconditionally by you. Thank you for all you have done for us, Christ Jesus. When we say that we enjoy you, we love you. Because of your love in us, love flows out of us to you and to those around us. May it come easily this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I really invite you, if you'd like to uh, come to the front and for prayer, then we would love to do that. Maybe you'd rather pray with the person you came with. Do pray with someone today if you'd like some prayer. Don't miss that opportunity because it's so precious, isn't it, to pray with one another.